In advance of the opening of our major exhibition, Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Jacobites, writer Diana Gabaldon visited the National Museum of Scotland to talk about her work. Hear her in conversation with thriller writer Lynn Anderson as she discusses the origins of the best-selling series Outlander, which revolves around the Jacobite challenges. Discover how she combines history and fiction in her novels, even bringing Bonnie Prince Charlie himself to life. Well, your reaction when Diana came into the room was much the same as my own. <laughs> when I got the email asking me to do this, I, I couldn't believe I could be as lucky. In 1998, my husband and I were in Venice, and at that time, Marco Polo Airport was quite a small affair. It's got much bigger since then. And we were on our way back from a week, and I, my book was finished, and I thought, I wonder if they've got a book uh, in the airport. And it was a tiny little, almost a cupboard of a book uh, shop. And I looked for the English language books and there were six on a shelf. <laughs> uh, and there was this one called Cross Stitch. And actually what drew my eye, first of all, is it was nice and thick. And I thought, <laughs> it will last me. And I pulled it down and I read uh, the back of the book and I thought, somebody's written about Scotland. <laughs> wow, you know, and I, I took the book with me and I, I loved it. I completely loved it. My home village is Carbridge in the Highlands. And when I got home, those were the early days of emailing. And uh, we had email, we were still trying it out. And I thought, this, this woman's written about Inverness and she's got it right. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to try and tell her. So I, I found a, a, a contact for Diana and I emailed her. Now that was before I became a writer myself and the fact that she'd got Inverness right was wonderful, but she answered me. I was, <laughs> I was gobsmacked. A writer would answer me by email and you said, you were so glad that you, you know, that it had worked for me, uh, Inverness was right. Uh, but in fact, at that moment in time, you hadn't visited Scotland, which <laughs> impressed me even more. Um, so we're going to talk a bit about Diana's, well, she's going to do most of the talking. And we've had a lovely talk already upstairs uh, about the areas. But of course, it's linked to the whole Jacobite event that's happening here. So I think my first question is going to be, we writers believe it's all about character, and I think you readers will agree with that too. We fall in love with a character, and as a writer, don't mess with readers' characters. They don't <laughs> forgive you if you do that. And I was fascinated uh, with the story initially because we had two different time eras. Mm -hmm. We had a collision of time eras. Uh, between a woman who's a Sassanac, a lowlander, and a highlander. Uh, and my first question reading it was, how did you end up, where did these characters come from? And how did they end up in Jacobite Scotland? What drew you to that? Ah, well, it was actually an accident. I had decided to write a novel for practice, 
having turned 35, and I said Mozart was dead at 36, maybe you'd better get started here. And uh, so I said, all right, I'm going to write a novel for practice, just to learn how to write a novel. And so I said, what's the easiest possible kind of book I could write for practice? No sense making it hard. And so I thought a bit and said, well, for me, perhaps historical fiction. I was a research professor. I knew my way around the library. I had access to the International Library Loan System. This was long before the internet happened. And I said, so uh, it seems easier to look things up than to make them up. And if I turn out to have no imagination, I can steal things from the historical record, <laughs> which actually works pretty well. And um, so I said, OK, uh, historical fiction. What era should I set this in? So I've got no background in history, just six hours of Western civilization they make you take as an undergraduate. So one time would do as well as another. I'd have to look it all up anyway. So I was casting around thinking, what sounds good? You know, 15th century Venice, American Civil War. In this malleable frame of mind, I happened to watch a really old Doctor Who rerun on public television. And this may be one audience where I don't have to stop and explain who Doctor Who is. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, it was one of the really early Patrick Troughton ones, uh, the second doctor. And in this, he had picked up a young companion from Scotland in 1745. This was a young man who appeared in his kilt. And I said, well, that's kind of fetching. <laughs> and I uh, found myself still thinking about this the next day, you know, in church. And I said to myself, um, <laughs> you want to write a book. It doesn't really matter where you set it. The important thing is pick a point, get started. So I said, fine, Scotland, 18th century. And so that's where I began, knowing nothing about Scotland or the 18th century, having no plot, no outline, and no characters. Nothing but the rather vague images conjured up by the notion of a man in a kilt, which <laughs> is, of course, a very powerful and compelling image. <laughs> In fact, uh, if I may digress for a moment, uh, I, my sixth book was a very lucky book for me. It won several awards, including the uh, Corina International Prize for Fiction, which is awarded in Germany. So I got to go to Germany to receive it. And while there, I was interviewed by everybody in the entire German press, you know, every half hour for a whole week. At the end of this, I was just sort of going like this. But I was talking to a man from one of their literary journals, and he said, oh, I've read all of your work. Your imagery is just transcendental. Your characters are so three-dimensional. Your narrative drive is tremendous. And I'm thinking, yes, yes, go on. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> instead, he, he said, there's just this one thing, I wonder. What is the appeal of a man in a kilt? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was really tired, or I might not have said it, but I just looked at him for a minute and I said, I suppose it's the idea that you could be up against the wall with him in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Which, if I recall, does happen on an odd occasion. <laughs> yes, once in a while. Um, anyway, a, a few weeks later, I got home from this little jaunt, and I was met by a pile of press clippings from all of these people I'd been talking to, with that one on top, I recognize it. Um, I, I can read German, but very slowly. But the publisher had put a post-it note on it that said, I don't know what you told this man, but I think he is in love with you. <laughs> So as I say, very powerful and compelling. So that's where it started, was with a man in a kilt. So, uh, and Scotland, 1745. So the first thing I did, of course, was go to the library and start looking up Scotland in, 19, in 1745. Now, the only thing that I actually knew about novels was that they should have conflict. So I was looking for conflict. 
And you don't do that in Scotland in the 18th century for very long before you run directly into Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Jacobites. I said, well, that looks like lots of conflict. Fine, what is that? I started writing immediately because I said the point is not to learn everything about Scotland in the 18th century. The point is to learn how to write a book. So if I write something and later I find something in the research that, uh, that contradicts that, I'll just change it. You know, it's words on the page. What could be easier? So no problem. So I've always done that to do the research along with the, uh, with the writing. You don't want to be one of these people who has been writing their book for the last 10 years and they've never put a word on paper because they're too busy finding out everything about the third Byzantine emperor, um, <laughs> if there was one. And uh, so, uh, so I didn't do that. And uh, so I was you know, writing along with my man in a kilt. And you know, I was just writing little half-considered half scenes. He was talking to his uh, sister who was making a, a, a hair pie, I think it was. And she was chopping vegetables and they were having some kind of argument. I had no idea what was going on. I was just kind of trying out the idea of fiction. And uh, I got to the part where I was describing what she was putting in her hair pie and how you made a hair pie. I had a book of Scottish recipes that I had picked up somewhere. And uh, I liked the part where she was smashing the bones with a hammer so the marrow would leak out into the pie. That seemed very authentic. But when I got to the end of this description, I put in, uh, by habit, the square brackets that you use for the bibliographic citation that proves what you yeah. said is true. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, wait a minute, this is fiction. You don't have to do that. <laughs> Intensely freeing. So the second day went even better. Uh, well, around the third day of writing, I said, uh, I must have a lot of Scotsmen because of the kilt factor, of course, but because um, I think it's, I need conflict, I think I should have a female character to play against these guys. Then we'll have sexual tension. That's conflict. That's good. Yeah, must have that. And on the basis of my three days research, I said, this seems roughly to have been the Scots versus the English. If I make her an English woman, we will have lots of conflict. <laughs> For some reason, Scottish audiences always laugh at that one. <laughs> the English ones don't. <laughs> so on the third day of writing, I introduced this English woman. No idea who she was, what she was doing there, how she got into the plot. But I loosed her into a cottage full of Scotsmen who uh, had to see what she'd do. I love that scene. <laughs> Well, they were all sitting around the fire, you know, muttering to each other. And when she came in, they turned around and stared at her. I was thinking, why does she look odd? What's going on here? Anyway, one of them drew himself up and he said, my name's Dougal Mackenzie, and who might you be? And without my stopping to think, I just typed, my name's Claire Elizabeth Beecham, and who the hell are you? <laughs> I said, you don't sound at all like an 18th century person. So I fought with her for several pages, trying to beat her into shape and make her talk like an 18th century uh, woman. She wasn't having any. She just kept making smart-ass modern remarks. <laughs> and uh, she also took over and started telling the story herself. And I said, OK, I'm not going to fight with you all the way through this book. <laughs> I said, no one's ever going to see this. It doesn't matter what bizarre thing I do. Go ahead and be modern. I'll figure out how you got there later. So it's all her fault. <laughs> <laughs> so you just brought her from the future. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I said, yeah. well, if you're going to talk like you're modern, then you're modern. Okay, I'll figure out how it works later. <laughs> There's a lot of serendipity, do you find, in telling yes, stories? <laughs> and it, sometimes the way you describe it there, uh, from my point of view, you think that the, the character walks in and decides mm -hmm. that they're being part of this story. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they do. <laughs> just the way you describe that, but clear, Claire as a character did not want to be of that time. She yeah, was coming no, no, from somewhere else. Ideas, yeah. and, you know, you play with the scene and you do everything to mm -hmm. try and mould the character into what you think they should, and then no. <laughs> no, not happening. <laughs> yeah, not going there. So you came to Scotland with the second book. Yeah. And mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that experience and why you know ah. you came. Well, um, I was very lucky with my first book. Uh, I wrote it for practice, as I say, but assorted things happened. And I got a literary agent before I had actually finished the first book. 
So when I did finish it, I gave it to him, and uh, he said, well, I'm going to send it out today to five editors who I think might like it. And he told me who they all were and why he thought they might like it. And I said, well, great, you know, um, how long do you think we might have to wait for an answer? Because I'd been reading things like the writer's market and so forth that say, you know, 18 months <laughs> to two years before you get a reply from a publisher. And he said, oh, I've told them all I want an answer in 30 days. And I'm thinking, boy, you picked the right agent. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went home to wait for 30 days. So instead, four days later, I got a call on my answering machine. We still had answering machines in 1989. And um, he said, this is Perry. I've just called to update you on your manuscript. You know, give me a call back. And so I called up expecting to hear that of the five he'd sent it to, one of them said, here, I'm not reading a 10-pound book. Take it back. But instead, he said, well, of the five I sent it to, so far three of them have called back with offers to buy it. So he negotiated amongst them for two weeks. He merged with a three-book contract. And bing, I was a novelist. So I'm <laughs> just <laughs> amazingly lucky. But uh, the point is that uh, suddenly I was a novelist with a three-book contract. Uh, when I'd given him the book, I said, you know, as I've finished uh, writing this, I, I realized there's more to the story. You know, so, you know, if anyone is interested in this book, you can tell them that. And he did. He said, she says there's more. And they said, well, trilogies are very popular these days. Mm -hmm. Do you think she could write three? Being a good agent, he said, oh, I'm sure she could. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they gave me a three-book contract. Now I want to pause here and state for the record that I never said it was a trilogy. I just said there's more. <laughs> and as it turns out, there was quite a bit more. But anyway, there we were. And, uh, and I did have a, an advance that they'd paid me for the first book. And uh, so I said to my husband, oh, I think I must really go and see Scotland, <laughs> having done the first book entirely from library research. I think I, I, I need to see it. And he agreed. So we left the kids with my father and stepmother, and we all came to Scotland and uh, rented a car, drove up the, the west coast and all around the highlands, and uh, collected a much better Gaelic English dictionary than the small one I'd started with, and a few other books, and you know, uh, smelled things. The only thing you can't find out about a place from re library research is how it smells, because yeah. nobody ever yeah, writes yeah. about that, yeah. except me. And uh, you, you write <laughs> about, write about smells. Yes. Yeah. As people always say to me, do you have a particularly acute sense of smell? <laughs> 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 I might. <laughs> no, I asked uh, Bruce, the, one of the museum people, who was taking me around to different uh, things to see them yesterday after our regular program was over. I said, you know, there's this odd smell that uh, hanging around you know, some of these buildings is particularly strong here and he said well there's a reason for that opened the uh, the the room that holds a lot of whale skeletons yeah, <laughs> right. I said yeah that's it <laughs> but yeah um, so anyway um, when I sold the book to the UK it was six months after we'd sold it to the US and I said to them for God's sake have a Scott read it I've never actually been there and so they gave it to Rhea Tannehill to read. She was a very good historical novelist herself, since deceased, I'm afraid. But she was very helpful. She sent me back a page or so of what turned out, luckily, to be very minor comments. But one of those was about how Loch Ness smells. She said, now you've described it as smelling like sun-warmed stone and raspberry canes, which is what you know, the water course I'd been imagining smelled like. And she said, I've actually been there, and it smells like uh, cold mud and dead fish. <laughs> I said, right, we can fix that. <laughs> Not a problem. So. Uh, one thing, when I read the first book, you, it, you know, it's a, it's a big adventure, but mm. there's a lot of humour in it. And what really struck me in it is that she gets Scottish humour. <laughs> and it's a big giveaway if people try and write about Scots or write about Scotland, and they just don't get the humour. Mm. So mm -hmm. it, that, that struck me very forcibly, and it made me laugh a lot. Oh, you know, oh, that's so good. <laughs> I, 
plus the Gaelic. And you mentioned a little bit about, you know, using the dictionary, but you, we were talking upstairs about, you know, how you eventually got to the, mm -hmm. the Gaelic later mm -hmm. on. Yeah. yeah, well, from my research, I could tell that, uh, that Gaelic had been what people mostly spoke in the Highlands, or Urs, as they sometimes called it. And I said, you know, to uh, be accurate about it, we want to you know, make sure that that fact is apparent. At the same time, it's all right for Clara not to understand everything that's said around her or to her, but she needs to understand a fair amount of what's said around and to her. So we made some of the Mackenzies, you know, uh, educated people with multiple languages so they could talk to her in English and so forth. And uh, she could deduce a lot from the expressions on people's faces while they were talking to each other in Gaelic. But I said I need to have at least a few uh, phrases or words in Gaelic to give you the actual flavor of it being spoken. So I looked all over the place for a Gaelic-English dictionary, which is not an easy thing to find in Phoenix, Arizona in 1988. Um, even the International Library alone didn't have one. So I was calling around various bookstores across the country. This was before Barnes & Noble even. And finally I found Steinhoff's Foreign Books in Boston. And I called them up and said, do you by any chance have a, uh, a Gaelic-English dictionary? And they immediately said, Irish Gaelic or Scottish Gaelic? And I said, <laughs> Scottish Gaelic, please. And so they sent me this uh, thin volume, and that's what I used for Outlander. Naturally, all of the Gaelic is somewhat wrong. But uh, anyway, when I went to uh, Scotland, I got a much bigger and more thorough and comprehensive one, which I still do use to some extent. But after uh, Dragonfly was published, I got this nice letter from a gentleman named Ian McKinnon Taylor. And he said, uh, dear Miss Cabaldone, I've been reading your books and, and they're wonderful. It's so great to see my, uh, my native country and culture depicted mm -hmm. so, uh, so beautifully and so well. He said, there's just this one thing I hesitate to mention. I think you must be getting your Gaelic from a dictionary. He <laughs> <laughs> said, you know, it's not that your words are wrong per se, but you're not using them grammatically or idiomatically the way that a real native speaker would. He said, I am a native speaker. I was born on the Isle of Harris, though I now work in Connecticut. And he said, uh, could I possibly offer you my services as a translator? I said, where have you been all my life, Mr. McKinnon? <laughs> so, so yes, we, uh, we did that. And so for the next three books, I think it was, Ian helped me with, uh, with the Gaelic. Though as we got more complex about it, he would sometimes have to call back to the Isle of Harris and talk to his Auntie Margaret and, or his <laughs> twin brother Hamish, who were still speaking Gaelic, and you know, check some fine point of grammar. But he was very helpful. Then after that, there were sort of health problems and he was not able to help me anymore. But at that point, I luckily acquired the services of Kathy Ann McPhee who is a very well-known uh, uh, Scottish uh, television presenter and singer mm -hmm. and uh, is good friends with a good friend of mine in Canada, which is where I met her. Anyway, uh, so now Kathy Ann does my, uh, my Gaelic translations. But uh, being Kathy Ann, she's very thorough about it. So I can't just send her a line and say, what is this, how would I say that in Gaelic, like I did with Mr. McKinnon. I send her a line and she says, well now, tell me who is speaking here, and, uh, yeah. and was this man older than this man, or is this man younger than this man? What is the biological relationship between them? <laughs> and I'm saying, how about I just send you the whole scene? <laughs> so I do that, and she sends back this beautifully nuanced translation that takes into account their social standing and their relationship with each other and all that. Uh, though I'm told that uh, the Gaelic in my later books has a strong Bera accent. <laughs> okay, that's quite far away from, yes. <laughs> yeah, from the Highlands. Remember when I first read uh, the book, um, this business of the, you know, the way that the Highlanders and the Lowlander Assassinach, you know, interact. I was reminded of Kidnapped um, mm -hmm. by Robert Louis Stevenson. We were talking about that. Kidnapped, if you haven't read it, is a, a, a fabulous book. I mean, Robert Louis Stevenson is a fabulous writer, mm -hmm. much like yourself. But it takes place just after 
the 45 rebellion in 52, it really deals with this whole business of trying to understand what was going on in, in that time in history between the Highlands and effectively the Lowlands, <laughs> not necessarily England. But it also has in it real people. Alan Breck uh, mm -hmm. kidnapped is a mm -hmm. real person. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about you know, marrying fiction, mm -hmm. in fact, and taking a real character. And obviously, from the point of view of the Jacobite exhibition, that big mammoth, iconic character in the Jacobite story in Scotland is Bonnie Prince Charlie, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who is himself in your book. Do you want to talk yeah. a bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, you always have a, sort of an ethical problem when you deal with real historical people in a fictional setting and so forth. Um, what kind of duty do you owe to people like that? Um, and there's no real answer to that. Most writers decide where their own personal line of tolerance lies. Some people treat them just as they would any fictional character and make them behave in, and say anything you know that suits their plot. Other people are very, very picky and will not quote a historical person as having said something that, they, that is written down as having been said by them. I fall somewhere in between in that I always look for the most primary information on that character. I do look for things that they wrote or said and uh, you can find a, a sense of their personal personality in doing that. And I try to approach them in settings where I know they were and doing something that's at least uh, reasonable for them to have done at that point. But my bottom line is that I won't depict a historical person as having done anything worse than what I know him to have done. <laughs> yeah, so I may depict them in a slightly better light than they really were, but not worse. As for Bonnie Prince Charlie, I went looking and uh, there was a lot of stuff written about him, but I realized that quite a bit of it was propaganda written quite a long time after the fact. And so I went looking for more primary sources. And luckily enough, I came across a book called Bonnie Prince Charlie by uh, Susan McLean Kybet. And Susan is a fellow of the Royal Scottish Historical Society and had spent uh, six years with the private Stuart papers decoding everything. And she had what seemed to be a very accurate take on him. So her book was what I used as, as my basic material for depicting him. And, you know, <coughs> the, the settings in France, did you visit France or...? Did you operate the same way with the research as you did originally in Scotland? Mostly. I had been to France a, a couple of times just as a tourist before I began writing the books. So I had a general sense of how that smelled. You know, it, uh, yeah, you don't want to know how it smells. And, <laughs> I tell you, one of these days, and I'm going to put it in my will, I'm going to leave a million dollars to the city of Rouen in, uh, in, on the condition that they install public toilets every 300 yards. <laughs> Yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, when you were talking earlier about getting the deal, you know, for your book mm -hmm. quite swiftly, and you know, I wanted to just remind everybody that it took J.K. Rowling a lot longer than that. Yes, it did. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, uh, J.K. Rowling says that she <coughs> planned the entire series. So, mm -hmm. and we're up. Book 10 here at the moment? I'm with on the, book 9 well, at the moment, the but I'm pretty sure there is a book yeah, 10. Book yeah. 10 is on its way. Mm -hmm. um, did you, had you a grand plan for oh, this? No. <laughs> no, I didn't even have a plan for the first book. Yeah, I just make it up. I like but this woman. I never have a plan either. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, to me, it's not fun if you know what's going to happen. Yeah. And I don't see how you could possibly plan something like that. It's a very big, complex story. It depends on a lot of historical things that I don't know yet, so how do I know what's going to happen? 
So uh, I actually don't write with an outline, and I don't plan books out ahead of time, and I don't write in a straight line. I write in little bits and pieces where I can see things happening. And then gradually, as I think and work and uh, do research, things start to sort of grow little feet and stick together. So, you know, I'll write something, and I don't know what happens next, so I'll go write something over here and something over here. Then I write something, and I think, oh, this explains why that happened, and I put it in front of that. And reading through the whole thing, I can see what has to have happened next, and I can write that. And then I don't know what happens, so I go off and write some more, and eventually I get another piece that's shaped like this, and it fits in. It's like playing Tetris in my head, but really slowly. Yeah, so. but, <laughs> but I mean, that's how I work. People, some people, some writers, many writers are linear thinkers. Mm -hmm. And all the books that I've ever read about, well, I have never actually read a book about how to write because I didn't want to listen to their opinions. But I mean, all of the books I have heard about that tell you how to write, and also everything I was told at school about how to write goes in a strictly linear fashion. You must have a topic sentence. You must have a topic paragraph. You must write a rough draft. You must edit your rough draft. You must polish your rough draft. Then you must turn in the final paper. So when I go to elementary schools to talk to them about career days and writing and publishing, I'll get halfway through and then I'll ask the teacher to turn his or her back and I'll say, okay, they can't see you. Um, so tell me the truth here. When you get one of these assignments, you know, write an essay and outline and all this jazz, how many of you just write the final paper and then fake up the rest to turn in? And about a third of them will raise their hands. Those are the people who think like I do. <laughs> but there it's are a lot of us. <laughs> that, that way of writing, I think I heard Anne Cleves, well, I was doing an event with Anne Cleves, and she mm. says she approaches a book like a reader. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's always a surprise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and that seems to me a very nice way of going about it. So Much more fun. No grand plan. No, nope, no. No grand plan. Um, I think we'll move on to the, the whole film thing oh, now. Sure. Mm -hmm. Can I just ask <coughs> the audience, how many of you had knew nothing about this series of books before you saw uh, the television series? Ah. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. That's very interesting. That's yeah. about two-thirds, maybe, yeah, even up to mm -hmm. two-thirds, yeah. which shows you what a wonderful medium is mm -hmm. well shot television can open up how many of those people have now read the books <laughs> that's good that's well very, after all you are here tonight <laughs> yeah I, I remember when i you know first met the books and started to work my way through them i i was seized by they're very visual mm -hmm. um you really feel you're right in that scene in the midst of these characters, mm -hmm. which is what I love about them. But it struck me how powerful that would be on the screen. But I think it's only now, really, with the, the advent of these wonderful long series, um, rather than trying to encapsulate something in a film, which mm -hmm. you, know, you have to strip out so much, really. Tell us a little bit about the whole how did they end up finally on the screen? Ah, well, it's a long tale, long in time, not particularly long in the telling, I hope. People have been trying to make a two-hour movie out of Outlander ever since I wrote it. We would get three or four requests a month. Uh, probably many of you know how an option works, but just in case. What happens if someone wants to make a movie out of your book or a television series? They come and approach you or your agent, and they offer you a modest amount of money, usually, for what's called an option. 
An option is just an exclusive right for them to try to put together the package that's needed to actually produce a large uh, motion picture or a TV series, which is a lot of money. And so uh, with that option in hand, they know nobody else can do this, and so they can then go around and try to raise money, I know $60 million or so, and they can approach different uh, directors and try to get to you know, an A-list director who says, yes, I want to do that project, and perhaps they attach as they call it, a couple of stars whose, whose names people recognize. And if they can put all that together, then they have a reasonable chance of actually making the movie. At that point, they will uh, pay you a somewhat larger amount of money, which is the actual purchase price for the film. And that price is laid down in the option. That means the option has been exercised. At that point, they own this property. You'll never get it back and you don't know what they'll do with it. If they don't succeed in making the movie, they still own it. And you know that may mean that the movie never gets made. If they won't you know, sell it back to you, and maybe you don't have the money to buy it back. Or they may sell it to someone else who does something horrible with it. They may do something horrible with it, you don't know. So you wanna be real careful who you do options with, and we were. We only did options four times since I wrote the books. The first three lapsed without incident. You know, They paid me the option and couldn't make a movie, and luckily then, then it went away, and I just kept the the, uh, the rights until the next person showed up. For the record, uh, Sir Anthony Burgess lived on the option payments for his book, A Clockwork Orange, for 35 years yeah. before they finally made a movie of it. <laughs> so <laughs> so options option, are not a bad thing. Option, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And finally, they made a quite a good movie of it, so okay. he, was, he was lucky. But the fourth option, this was a gentleman named Jim Kohlberg, who was uh, an investment banker and made a lot of money, but he hit his 50s and said, I want to make something besides money. I think I want to make movies. And so he had actually made three small movies, which were quite good, you know, critically acclaimed and so forth, but you know, not big, big release movies. So we saw that and said, yeah, okay, he knows what he's doing, and you know, he's got a good feel, etc. He'd fallen madly in love with the story. He'd read read the book four times before coming to talk to me. And on one phone call, he said he thought he was channeling Murtaugh. <laughs> <laughs> did he mean that seriously? Or yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He said, you know, I've, I've just been having one of those horrible days where you know everything's going wrong and and uh, just suddenly I heard Murtaugh's voice in my head you know as he's saying to Clara about Jamie well most of us don't get what we want in life why should he be any different <laughs> yeah. so anyway I said okay he you know he's got an attachment to the book he's more likely to, to do a good job with it so we went ahead and gave him an option well he tried very seriously for about two years to to do this his option kept expiring every six months or so and he would pay us more money you know he tried he uh, approached a lot of directors couldn't quite get anyone interested he hired two very well-known screenwriters and I won't tell you their names because <laughs> uh, when I read Ron Moore's first pilot script I said this is the first thing I've ever read based on my work that didn't make me turn white or burst into flame <laughs> <laughs> so anyway those didn't work either <laughs> for good and, and sufficient reason so anyway he kept trying but meanwhile Ron Moore had finished filming Battlestar Galactica you know his it, it had come to the end and he was looking for another project and so he said he was having dinner at, with his wife and his production partner in Vancouver and talking about what he might do next. And his production partner, Meryl, uh, said, have you ever read Outlander? She said, I think it might appeal to you. It's got you know, a strong female character, a lot of you know, adventure and, and, and interesting stuff going on. And uh, his wife perked up and said, Outlander, you've read Outlander? <laughs> and so they started doing what people who've read Outlander do when they meet each other. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And he said, I was just sitting there sipping my martini and looking back and forth. And finally, I said, well, does one of you have a copy of this book? And Merle pulled one out of her bag Bye. and gave it to him. So he said, I took it home and read it that night. And, you know, I 
realized I hadn't ever read this story before. So I read a lot of stories, and they have patterns generally. Yes, I yeah. had never run into a truly, truly original story before, and, and this mm -hmm. is one. He said, you know, I, we would come to a certain point in the plot, and I'd think, oh, now it's going to develop like this, and it, it didn't. Doesn't. It went that way. Yeah. And so he was fascinated, and, uh, and so he came looking for the rights. Well, Jim was the option holder, so he approached Jim about it, and Jim was going, no, I want to make a two-hour movie of it, and Ron, being a very laid-back guy, said, okay, I'll check back with you. So every six months here, Merrill would call Jim and say, how's that two-hour movie working out for you, Jim? And Jim would say, well, I think we're getting somewhere. And then finally he said, I think you might be right. It might be a TV show. So at that point, they got into serious negotiations. And the negotiations from that point took two years. The TV contracts are, you know, awful. But uh, it ended up with this very odd five-sided arrangement between Jim and me and uh, Ron and Sony, who held Ron's production contract because they'd made uh, Battlestar Galactica part of his agreement there, was that they would finance uh, his next three pilot projects. Right. He'd made two, which were failed pilots. They didn't develop into a series. So Outlander was his third throw. So Sony was part of it. And then finally, Stars was uh, the distributor. And so it became a Stars production. So that was how we got to this point. <laughs> and of course, uh I can remember waiting to watch this first episode and I'm sure you were all in the same situation if you'd read the books, sitting waiting for it to appear mm. and and the nerves yeah. yeah, as to whether they would get the right character, if the mm -hmm. characters mm -hmm. were right because, mm -hmm. you know, right back to the beginning when we said it's mm -hmm. all about the characters. We must talk about Jamie now, ladies. <laughs> I've held off. <laughs> in our house, if you know, occasionally John will say to me, "Would Jamie have done that?" You know, so that shows the power of the character. Mm -hmm. But I think they're a wonderful match. That was my biggest fear because I mean, things can go horribly mm -hmm. wrong. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the first series he made of Rebus with John Hannah, mm -hmm. he's a good actor, but he wasn't Rebus, mm -hmm. and and it sort of totally turns you off. But yeah. I thought, I, and the chemistry, I mm. thought it worked really well. That's Were you involved in those choices or did you see them before? I did see them before, yeah. I have nothing actually to say about casting. I have nothing legally to say about anything, but uh, my contract does specify that I am a consultant on the show. And I asked my agent, what does that mean exactly? And he said, well, usually it means nothing. It's just a way of getting around their accounting apartment and making them pay you more money. But um, <laughs> because I have to pay a consultancy fee for each episode. He said, usually a production, you know, doesn't really want you to be involved and, you know, just keep you at arm's length and you collect your money and that's it. He said, but on occasion, sometimes they will, will like you or, or find that you have something valuable to offer, in which case, you know, they'll, they'll make it clear what they would like you to do. Well, luckily, you know, Ron and Merrill and I uh, met for two days before this deal was made and we were all very much on the same wavelength with regard to character and storytelling and so forth. And I told them a lot about what I knew about uh, the future of the story and, and uh, more than they knew about the backstory and so mm -hmm. forth. So they were disposed to listen to me. And, you know, it was a very gradual thing, but by the, the fourth episode, they were, in fact, sending me scripts uh, to read and the revisions of the scripts. And uh, they were sending me the daily footage that they shot for, from, for the show, which is fascinating to watch. And what's most fascinating about it is how much of it is left out of the final uh, cut of the episode because they only have 55 minutes and they shoot much more than that. So there's always just really great stuff that they can't cram in. So I always feel slightly bad when I watch the episodes. But then sometimes it's so good that you know you just think, well, this is perfect as it stands. There is all this other good stuff, but you know this is really great. Uh, other 
sometimes I'm thinking, no, you made the wrong call there. You should put that in. <laughs> but, but Ron is the, is the editor. And uh, well, yeah, he's not the editor, but he's the final voice who approves whatever is done. And you know, it's his show. Mm -hmm. But we get along well together is the basic point. It was interesting when I saw Jamie because, I, do you, does everybody remember a wonderful advert many years ago for a beer? <laughs> you remember it? And that fabulous plain Caledonia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was a guy in London that, you know, jumps on the train, decides to give it all up. Does that ring a bell? Ten minutes longer. That's, that, that's Jimmy. Yeah, it is. That's Sam Hewen. As a <laughs> young early man. jobs. <laughs> yeah. Go back and find it on YouTube and yeah. see. <laughs> he's not wearing a kilt, but no, yeah. no, he's, got a he's not wearing all that. No, he's not wearing yeah. a kilt. No, I, I did see uh, Sam's audition tapes and, and also the ones he did with Katrina when they found her. Um, they'd called me, uh, Meryl and Ron, while I was driving with my husband to, towards San, Santa Fe. And they caught up with me in Flagstaff, and they said, "Oh, we're so excited. We found Jamie." Well, this was four days after they'd started looking for casting. And I said, are you kidding? I guess everyone thought it would take months and months. Meryl confided that she thought it would take months and months, and finally it would turn out to be the UPS man or somebody. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, no, they'd found him. And they said, we're really excited. We hope you like him. I said, I hope so too. You know, I said, what's his name? You know, and, and what color is his hair? We're thinking, you know, skin tone. And they said, he's a blonde. And I said, that's all right. You know, the skin tone will go well with red hair. And uh, so I was driving along towards he's Santa Fe. He's blonde? He's blonde. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> Well, as, as, but he, not in the film. Yeah. as he says, I'm a dirty blonde, a dirty, yeah. dirty blonde. <laughs> but he is, he's also extremely curly, which is why film Jamie has curly hair and, uh, and book Jamie does not, because mm -hmm. the, rather than try to straighten Sam's hair, which is, it's not happening, you know, they said, we're just going to go with it. Yeah. So I couldn't watch the film that they were sending me until I got to Santa Fe that night. So I was Googling on my phone, you know, uh, Sam Hewen. And uh, to that point, he had just done, you know, small things like the yeah. Tenant Slogger ads. And he had like a half season in River City and things like that, but not much and only two small films. Well, Sam is a chameleon. He looks totally different in every single role and frequently from scene to scene, yeah. as you may have noticed. There were only a few still shots of him. I was looking at these and I was typing, this man looks grotesque, what are you thinking? Though, <laughs> <laughs> no, as I point out to people who take issue with that, grotesque does not exactly mean ugly, it means unusually striking. Yeah. And I defy you to say that he's not, you know. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I got to uh, Santa Fe and brought up the audition, I was kind of going like this because I wasn't sure what I was going to see, much like yeah. you. Uh -huh. But it was perfect, you know, five seconds in, I was thinking, well, he doesn't look at all like his pictures, another five seconds, he was gone and it was Jamie Fraser yeah. right there. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about no that doubt at all. earlier <laughs> when we were chatting about you've just come back from South Africa because we were talking about you know most people don't realize when you shoot a script you don't do start at the beginning and go to the end you do it in bits and people have to change you know there's the psychology of they'll do one scene and then mm -hmm. you know uh, you want yeah. to talk a wee bit about the South African experience? Oh, yeah. and well, it was fun. You know, we're, we're shooting in South Africa because the last part of Voyager takes place in the Caribbean. And while Scotland in the north does have uh, white sand beaches, it doesn't have water that you can put actors into. So <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, Stars did have a series called Black Sails, a pirate drama, which had ships and uh, sets that were like the insides of ships. 
And Black Sails has now finished its run, but there's still all these ships and things that belong to STARS. So we came to a conclusion with STARS and we essentially acquired their ships and uh, sets in South Africa. And it's much easier to ship a few actors and their makeup and costume people to South Africa than to move the entire production. <laughs> so that's what we did. And so all of that's been the last few episodes that are set in the Caribbean are being filmed down there. Uh, we've altered the uh, the ships and the and the town's appearance, so you won't recognize it from Black Sails, but that's where it came from. Anyway, we went down and we're watching uh, the the filming for a few days, and then we went up north to you know see wild animals. Came back to say goodbye to people before we went home, and you know watch a little bit more of the filming. We arrived around midday, and as I was going in, I found Sam, you know, by himself in this sort of little dusty alcove. He was wearing uh, ratty breeches and his disheveled stained shirt, and his hair was all on end. Uh, it looked really disheveled, and I said, I uh, we're just gonna go later today, but I uh, thought we'd stay and watch a, film a bit of filming. What have you been doing? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I think I'm going to be sick. <laughs> I said, well, you look it, you know, <laughs> what's up? And he said, well, you know, I've been doing the, this particular scene where Jamie is, is violently seasick all morning. <laughs> and he said, they give me this glass full of egg white tinted green, and they put this disgusting vanilla essence in it. <laughs> it's just horrible. Anyway, he says, after, you know, every time we do a take, I have to take a mouthful of this stuff, you know, and then go, <laughs> And <laughs> he says, no, I really want to throw up. <laughs> so I said, well, so you've all got an insight. When you see that, you can tell all your pals. I know what, what that's made of. Egg white whipped up a little bit, I would think. Yes, yes. Mm, a bit of that. Well, I, I didn't yeah. see those scenes, of course, because they'd already been no, filmed, no. but I saw them two days later when and they came saw back the in aftermath. the dailies. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And, you know, here's Sam, you know, sprawled on the floor, you know, throwing up in a bucket, very realistically. And the yell cut, and, and he sits back for a bit and breathes. And then they say, go again, and he'll take out his uh, glass of egg white from his birth and look at it with loathing. <laughs> and, you know, once again. So they did this four or five times. Times, you know, the, the whole scene. And uh, about the sixth time, uh, he gets his glass of egg white and he goes, fuck my life. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> well, as my husband said to him when he said to what he'd been doing, he said, you wanted to be an actor? <laughs> Sam looked at him and said, yeah, I did. What was I thinking? <laughs> Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Jacobites is on display at the National Museum of Scotland from the 23rd of June to the 12th of November 2017.